you know, one of the good things about old age is it doesn't last very long. <laughs> I sometimes say that, and my wife disagrees, because um, my father and mother were raised in the Ukraine, but they were German. They came to Canada. My mother was gloriously converted. They were in a little church where men were on one side, women were on the other. But my mother heard my father pray, so she knew he was a godly man. He asked if he could walk her home a half mile where she worked, half mile from the church. First time together, he asks whether or not she would marry him. She said she'd have to think about it, but uh, within two and a half weeks, they were married. They lived together for 77 years. My father lived to 106 and my mother to 103. I always say that my parents lived so long that I'm sure until my father died, all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. <laughs> you know, they said, where are the Lutzers? But the Lutzers made it. And you know, during this interview, you didn't mention whether or not your dogs went to Ireland with you. Did you take them with you? I mean, that's none of my business, don't answer it. <laughs> But I am reminded of the Jewish couple who took their dog with them to Israel. And you know, dogs have to be put in the hold of a, of a jet plane. They have special places for them. And so they flew LL, and they arrived in Tel Aviv. And um, the authorities, the airline, didn't allow them to see their dog. They said, you can't see him right now. What actually happened is the dog was dead. and so. The Tel Aviv authorities, they scoured Tel Aviv to find a dog that looked exactly like that one. Exactly. Same age, same kind, and so forth. And they said, here's your dog. The couple said, that's not our dog. They said, that's your dog. No, it's not. Why? Our dog was dead. We brought him here to bury him on the Mount of Olives. <laughs> How are you all doing tonight? <laughs> and for the many of you who have joined us, thank you so much. Your pastor gave a marvelous introduction, and I want to introduce uh, myself to you. But most importantly, get on the phone right now and tell some of your other friends that they should listen in. I'm going to be speaking on uh, giving you a message that I've never given before in this form. I've done bits and pieces of it, but I've never put it together. That happened this morning when I got up and proved the power of mind over mattress, which is important to do. And um, I said, I should talk about a philosophy of suffering because, you know, we talk about, um, you know, the pandemic. And if you were with us this morning, we talked about initiating a pandemic of hope. But when you do that, you're going to have resistance. So this is can be roughly titled uh, Suffering for Christ or Unleashing a Pandemic of Hope in Suffering, because that's where we're going. Now, a little bit of a word about the culture. We're living at a time when January 6th is going to be used as an excuse to take away our freedoms. If America ever becomes fascist, it'll become fascist under the guise of fighting fascism. So we need to understand where we are going as a culture. And uh, the agreement is basically this, and I could go into history and show you how this has been done before, but we have to skip that, except this. 
here is the agreement we will have. We will keep you safe, but in turn, we will also invade your freedoms. And that's so, so you have freedom of um, speech, you have freedom of privacy. Uh, that is going to be taken away from you. Perhaps you heard about the woman in Alaska who ran a shelter for battered women and a man who was a biological man but who identified as a woman wanted to stay there. And she objected to that and finally she was able to get him to leave. But she said these women would have rather slept in the snow than to sleep in a room with a biological man who claims to be a woman. Now, I could speak about that at some length because I've done some study in transgenderism, and a lot of it is absurdity, as I'll mention also in a moment in passing because we have to get to the text of Scripture, but except to say that we're living in a day when absurdity no longer is an argument against anything. In fact, the more absurd it is, the more possibly it will be believed. So here's my question today. Are we going to submit to the culture? That's the whole point. Is a businessman going to write a fake letter of apology for having been born white? There are many Christian businessmen who are facing that today. Are students at the university going to go along with the culture in order to graduate? There's a question that needs to be answered. What about school teachers? A school teacher in Chicago said that he was told that it was not only necessary to, I think maybe I mentioned it this morning, not only necessary to uh, tolerate same-sex marriage, but he has to actually celebrate it. So that which is canceled today is going to be criminalized tomorrow. I think that that is where we are going. And, and so I have a school teacher who writes to me and says, we have this student who at home is... Bert, because he was born a boy, but in school, he's Bertha. And so he says that he's a woman when he is at school. That's his identification. And then the principal tells, this, tells the teacher. Now, here's the thing. When his parents come for parent-teacher day, you don't dare tell them that in school he's Bertha. You go by Bert, because the parents aren't supposed to know that their boy is transgendering. Where is all this nonsense going to end? This past week, the House of Representatives uh, passed the Equality Act. The Equality Act, with no religious exemptions, basically says that when it comes to hiring and firing and all these practices, it has to be uniform across the board. And uh, in other words, churches would be subject to the same kind of non-discrimination as uh, other institutions when it comes to the transgender, the LGBTQ community, and so forth. And I know that when it gets to the Senate, there's going to be some who are going to say, well, we can only pass it if it has a religious exemption. Well, let me tell you something. That religious exemption will be a smokescreen. Number one, it'll only cover services in the church. It will not allow our faith to be lived out in the public sphere. And number two, it will bring about endless lawsuits regarding what constitutes public accommodations, what doesn't, etc., etc. The times are dark, and they are getting darker. And that's why I woke up this morning, and you may have already guessed that I did, but why I woke up this morning and said, you know what, I'm going to work on a message 
that is going to look at scripture and have more of a biblical view of suffering for Jesus. You know, when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, many people say, well, my cross is cancer. I understand where you're coming from, but I have to inform you that that's not what Jesus was referring to. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he was talking about the trouble that you will get into if you follow him. That's what his cross is. This idea of taking up your cross and following Jesus is a wonderful idea until you remember that the cross took him to Golgotha where he died. Then the idea seems to not be quite as attractive. All right, are we ready? Four or five of you, you've agreed? You can even take notes. If you didn't bring any note paper, God will forgive you if you fill out the right form and so forth. And uh, Pastor Eric, you're the only one on the front row. Now, I know because of COVID that's the way it is, but I have to say this to people who sit on the front row. I always tell them that when they get to heaven, their head, they're gonna, their crown is going to be so heavy that their head is going to have to be tilted. And that includes now Tim and Kathy and all those here, and actually everybody. Thank you for joining me. Are we ready? So let me give you five propositions, two conclusions. My responsibility is to speak. Your responsibility is to listen. And I've been praying to God that we shall end at the same time. All right, number one, suffering is part of our calling. Suffering is a part of our calling. Now, tonight, I'm going to hardly refer, I'm, I'm going to maybe only ask you to turn to one or two passages. I'm going to stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance. I'll give you the reference. You can look them up later, and many of you will know these passages. When the Apostle Paul is converted, miraculously, as he's on his way to Damascus, in chapter 9, verse 16, Ananias goes to him and says, I've come to tell you about the fact that you are going to be uh, a Gentile, preaching to the Gentiles. But then he says, and Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, told me that I'm to share with you the suffering that you will have for my name's sake. Embedded in the call of Paul was suffering. You say, well, that's Paul, but that's not me. What did Jesus say in John 15, verse 20? He says, if the world hates you, they hated me before they hated you, and a servant is not greater than his master. If you think that you're not going to suffer for Jesus and take the heat as a university student, if you think that's the case, who do you think you are? Jesus was hated, and you and I think that we should skate through life and always be welcomed and always have freedom of religion, which we've enjoyed here. And I could comment more on that, but hurrying on. One of the clearest verses of Scripture, I looked it up this afternoon, is Philippians 1.29, where the Apostle Paul says, it is given to you not only to believe, but to suffer. So along with, we always like the believing, we like the believing, but along with that, embedded in the believing, it is given unto us by God to suffer for his namesake, Paul says. That's part of your calling. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy 3.12, we know that all who live righteous in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 1 Peter 4.12, don't think it's strange. Don't think it's strange about the fiery trial that is to try you. 
We shouldn't think these things are strange. Now, Hebrews 11, you have all these miracles. You have the miracle of Daniel. You have the miracle of Barak and Deborah and all the heroes. And then you get to the middle of verse 35. And others. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others were mocked and discouraged, and they wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins and in dens and caves of the ground. Were the miracles? There are none. You don't have to experience a miracle of deliverance in order for God to be faithful. Remember that. The martyrs have proved that. Now, here's what the average American thinks. And you have to understand I'm now an American. I was born a Canadian, and uh, then I came to America. My lovely wife is American, and we've been in America for a long time. And, uh, but this is what the average American or Canadian thinks. You know, if we were just the people that we should be, we would always have our freedoms that we enjoyed. We would have cultural dominance, and we'd have presidents who are on our side and everything like that, and if only we were the people that we should be. I want to challenge that thinking. The early church was the kind of people that they should be, and they were persecuted. Many years ago, 1985, I was in China, and some of us met with Bishop Ding, who was alive at that time, representing the church and so forth. And, uh, and he said this, he said, I know exactly who you folks are. He said, the only form of Christianity that survived in China was your kind of Christianity conservative beliefs in the uniqueness of Jesus. That's the only kind. Could you imagine a theological liberal, Eric, going to the wall for Jesus when he doesn't believe that Jesus is unique? All of the liberals capitulated. But there was a group that was faithful. Did that lift all the persecution so that they can have freedom? Oh, no. China, oh, don't get me off on that. China has more surveillance of people, and the way in which it is being done is scary. And the technology of knowing exactly where people are. You know what? I'm going to throw this in. I know I'm to be done at 7, but you know, I might go to 7.05. There ain't much going on here in this city at this time. COVID contact tracing. Our mayor in Chicago said that she was setting apart, I think, $650 million, or not quite that many, maybe it was $55 million, to train 650 contact tracers who are going to uh, trace you so accurately that they'll know what seat you sat in in a theater. They'll know who you were around, who has COVID, who doesn't have COVID. I think that this is heading down very dangerous path, this kind of technology. But it may come to that. The church has always been an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism because it has seen as part of its calling suffering. That's new to us. But the whole idea of freedom of religion like we have enjoyed is an anomaly. I once gave a lecture on the history of freedom of religion in Europe. There was no freedom of religion. There was no freedom of religion for Luther. He should have been put to death after he made that famous declaration in Worms. 
And by the way, it is worms, not worms. You know, people talk about the diet of worms. By the way, those who have tried it say that they've lost all the weight that they ever <laughs> have had. Uh, but we're talking here about worms, Germany, where Luther, I've been there many times, where Luther said, Hier stehe ich, ich kann nicht anderes. I thought I'd say it in German for our German friends that are here. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. He was to be put to death. He wasn't for some fascinating reasons. But uh, the point is, suffering has always been a part of the gospel. So cheer up and say, this is our calling. Number two, suffering gives us the opportunity to prove the supremacy of Christ. It gives us the opportunity to prove the supremacy of Christ. It shows that Jesus is more valuable than our wife, our children. It is more, he is more valuable to us than anything else you and I can think about. We're showing that Jesus is supreme. We will not give in. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells about parents who saw their children tortured and the parents urged their children to remain true to the faith. It brings tears to your eyes. They said there is something worth more than even those precious children, and that is Jesus. And living for him and not denying him is more important to us than life itself. And by the way, death shows us the supremacy of Jesus. That's why Paul says, you know, I'd like to stay with you, but actually I'd prefer to be with Jesus, which is far better. So we prove the supremacy of Jesus over everything because we could cave in. You know, we've got tons of examples of people doing that, but we say we will not, and we give God glory because of the supremacy of Jesus. And that's why I think here I'd write down 1 Peter chapter 1, the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto glory and honor and praise at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Suffering gives us the opportunity to prove the supremacy of Christ. Third, it strategically positions us for new ministry. It strategically positions us for a new and different ministry. When Paul was in prison, now this is very interesting, and I don't want to be critical. We pray that people will get out of prison and all that, and we should. But when Paul was in prison, he didn't say, pray for me that I might get out of prison. No, what does he say? He says, this is for God's glory and that I might be an example to you. And furthermore, I take the opportunity to witness to the guards. And that's the Apostle Paul. He saw the events of his life during these transitions as opportunities to say, I'm here to represent Jesus. And you and I need to think of the bigger picture. Now, I've written two books about Nazi Germany, and I say that again because of our German friends that are here. One is entitled, uh, When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Can Learn from Nazi Germany. But the original book, and you can buy either one, it, you don't need one to read the other, is entitled Hitler's Cross. And in Hitler's Cross, I talk about concentration camps like Buchenwald. 
And I mentioned pastors in Buchenwald, and I've gone through Buchenwald, and I've seen the names of pastors on all of the cells who died there. By the way, did you know that Einstein said that he honored the church? You know, we always say, oh, the church in Germany, it's submitted to the culture. Yeah, I don't think we'd have done any better. I don't think we're doing any better. But isn't it interesting? Einstein said, when Hitler came, I looked to the universities, those great bastions of freedom. I looked to the newspapers with their flaming editorials about the need for, for uh, uh, freedom. He said, Hitler came and they all became silent. He said, only the church stood across Hitler's path. It didn't do all that it should, but 700 pastors and priests did go to concentration camps because of their faith. That was some opposition. And I don't think we would do a lot better, actually. But here's the point that I want to make is one of the pastors said this, as I quote him. He said, suffering has given us a new alphabet to preach the gospel. He says, the time is come when we cannot, and I'm paraphrasing, we cannot simply preach the gospel with words anymore. The gospel must now be preached with deeds and with suffering. So even in a concentration camp where there probably weren't a lot of results and a lot of believers, that didn't matter. That's, that kind of result is in the hands of the Lord of the harvest, as we preached this morning. Even there, it didn't matter that much except that the pastor said, if I suffer well, I am preaching the gospel with a new alphabet preaching it a new way. We always have to ask ourselves, the gospel gives us, uh, strategically, suffering does, an opportunity for new ministry. Number four, even when we are in the hands of the wicked, oh, write this down. You say, I have no paper, I have no pen, that's fine, you know. But even when we are in wicked hands, as believers, we're still in the hands of God. The Bible says that wicked hands crucified Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, and what are his last of the seven sayings of Jesus? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I wish I could tell you about the church in Smyrna, where Jesus says that. He says that you're all going to be thrown into prison ten days. I'm going to let the devil do it. You be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He, he says, I'm throwing you into the hands of the devil. But while they were in the hands of the devil, they were still in the hands of God. But I do have a story that I have to tell you. John Hus. Oh, fascinating stuff. He's converted because some of the students in Prague went to Oxford, where Wycliffe was. They came back with the gospel, and Hus believed the gospel. And uh, he began to preach in Bethlehem Chapel, which you can see today, even though it's been rebuilt, you can go to say this is where Hus preached and so forth. But Hus began to preach the gospel, and the Pope didn't like it. Hus's name in Czech is Goose. He used to sign letters, the Goose. He's preaching the gospel, and there's a council in Constance, Germany. 
and the council meets in order to resolve an issue that was in the church. There were three popes reigning simultaneously. Each was accusing the other of great sin. Each was trying to raise money to fight the other, and this was an embarrassment. So they met in Constance to resolve it. Oh, fascinating stuff. But we have to hurry. But the idea was, let's bring John Hus to the council, and uh, he's going to be tried for heresy. And Sigismund, who is the brother of King Wenceslas, who looked out on the Feast of Stephen, Sigismund, the emperor, said, I will give you safe conduct. You'll be protected on the way. You'll be protected at home. Hus went. When he was at the council, Sigismund changed his mind and said he didn't have to keep his word to a heretic. So Hus is imprisoned. He is, um, he is uh, set in a monastery. He is given no food and water. He is suffering. They're trying to break him down. And he wrote some of the most encouraging letters to the church in the midst of all this. And now he's going to be taken to the stake and burned. And the authorities put a crown of head, uh, a crown of paper on his head saying, we commit you to the devil. We put you in the devil's hands. Hus said, I am in God's hands. Hus goes to the stake. Apparently he was singing. By the way, in France, during the persecutions, Sometimes believers sang so loudly on the way to their death that the authorities had to hire a band just to make noise to, so that you couldn't hear the singing. But anyway, Hus goes to the, gray, to the uh, place where he's burned. His books are there. He won't deny the faith. And then he says, you can cook this Hus. You can cook this goose. But in a hundred years, a swan will arise and him you will not silence. And today, today, by the way, we still use the expression, they cooked his goose. 500 years later, we're talking about people cooking his goose, cooking his hus. Luther comes along, and Luther said, Hus prophesied my coming. 102 years later, 102 years later, Luther nails his 95 theses upon the castle church door in Germany, and the first time I toured which was many years ago, and it's been my privilege to be back six or eight times, but many years ago, a swan was kind of a, um, a symbol of the Reformation. In fact, it was in the room there where they believed Luther died, even though there's some disagreement as to whether or not it's the right room, but you know how it is. When you're a tourist, you discover very interesting things. So they can cook this goose. The point is, think of it this way. Hus knew, you can throw me into the hands of the devil, and while I'm there, I'm still in the hands of God. And by the way, I've been to Constance, and they show you the stone upon which Hus was placed. I'm not sure if that's for real either, but uh, either way, the fact is that he died for the faith. And during trials, Luther was blamed. He was a Hussite. Luther said, no, I'm not. And then during the debate in in Leipzig, Luther went to a library and began to read Hus and said, I am a Hussite, because they taught justification by faith and so forth, but we must hurry on. Uh, suffering, and I think this is number five, gives us the opportunity to boast in God's comfort. 
If you look at the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh, he says, um, it weakens me. We don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh is. It may have been people who were against him. It may have been a physical ailment. It's good that we weren't told because it can apply to so many situations. But what did Hus say? Hus, excuse me, what did, um, who am I talking about here? <laughs> uh, Paul, what did Paul say? Paul says that uh, I boast in my weakness. You feel weak today, boast about it. Because when I am weak, he is strong. Despite the contradiction, when I'm weak, God often uses weak people. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that God uses sinners? I mean, really, that's, that's truly amazing, but he actually does. And if he didn't, he wouldn't have much help here on earth. But the point to be made is simply this, that we must remember that it gives God an opportunity to prove himself. I want to say one other thing, and that we can boast in his comfort. Maybe we'll give you number six, I'll only list it. God never promises us a calm passage in this life. Life is hard. Now, maybe sin hasn't come to Kentucky, but I can tell you it's alive and well in Chicago. People of course, like here, are suffering with cancer and COVID and broken relationships and children that are rebellious and all that, and sometime we'll talk about that if I'm invited back. But the point is this, that God doesn't promise a calm passage, but he promises a safe landing. You're going to land safe. If you're suffering tonight because your disease, for example, is terminal, and you're a believer, you're going to land safely. I know getting there is very difficult, and there's lots of turbulence, but there is a safe landing. I'd like to draw two conclusions from what I've said tonight. Number one, we don't have to have freedom of religion in order to be faithful. We don't have to have freedom of religion to be faithful. The martyrs have proved it. I'm thinking, for example, of the Boxer Rebellion in China. When the Boxers wanted to rid China of any Western influence, they went to a Christian school, and they, they put a cross down at the door, and they said, uh, if you step on the cross, that means you despise it. You're allowed to live. If you walk around the cross in honor of it, will kill you. The first eight students left the school, stepped on the cross, and they lived. But number nine was a girl. She prayed that God would give her the grace to do what she knew she should. She walked around the cross and was killed, but all the other students followed her example. She didn't have freedom of religion, but... She was faithful, and that's what counts. Second, don't, we don't have to win in this life, and this illustrates that. We don't have to win in this life in order to win in the life to come. During the days of Hitler, I think it was Niemöller who said, uh, people said, you know, what do we look like in the eyes of Germany if we stand against Hitler? And Niemöller said, who cares what we look like? 
when we, in the face of the Germans, what we look like in heaven is really what counts. And you students who are so tempted to submit to the culture at your universities and colleges, will you remember that who cares what you look like? Don't be shamed into silence. Don't be mocked out of your faith. But stand strong and take the consequences. And if you are being failed or flunked, walk away and say, I did the right thing. It's eternity that counts, not time. Should a man write a letter of apology for having been born white, having been born with a color of a skin that he had no control of? Of course he shouldn't. He might find that he's fired from the corporate world, but there are worse things than being fired from the corporate world, and that is to deny Jesus and to live a lie when you know it's a lie. There's a book written by a man, Rod Drescher. I think that's his name. We talked about him, uh, Pastor Eric. It's entitled, Live Not by Lies, because Solzhenitsyn, in his last speech in Russia before he left, said, don't live by lies. Powerful stuff. Should um, a teacher play the game of, uh, well, you know, when you're in class, you're Bertha, at home, you're Bert, and the parents play the game that the parents should never know that all this is happening? I don't think so. Should a teacher um, celebrate same-sex marriage like the one in Chicago who said that was his option? No, uh, you shouldn't. And if you are asked to, you have to lose your job. And then you say, well, you know, but I have a wife and kids. I know that. But this is an opportunity for two things. First of all, to trust God and to trust the body of Christ to help you through this crisis and to believe that your integrity and your witness is more important than life itself. It gives you an opportunity to prove the supremacy of Jesus over the world and over all the options. So the point to be made is simply this. We are headed for some very, very difficult times. Maybe I'll end by telling you the story of Hugh Latimer. I, I became interested in the uh, Reformation in England and led a tour there a few years ago. It is fascinating. Don't ever think that history is boring. It's not. If it's taught well, it lights a fire. When I was going to grade school, we looked at our history book, and we used to quote this. If this world should flood and waters rise so high, I'd stand upon this book because it is so dry. But you know, that's not true. That's not true. Do I have time for a story, Pastor? I, I, I do, good, because I fly back to Chicago tomorrow, so I just leave you to clean up afterwards. <laughs> I have to tell you this. Henry VIII, you know, he had uh, six wives. I think he beheaded only two, which is remarkable. And Anne Boleyn, oh, she is going to be in heaven. You should just see the prayers that she prayed. One of the reasons Henry was mad at her, she was falsely accused of adultery. Most people think it was false. But the, the, the point is, she was friends with Tyndale. So Tyndale, Tyndale sent her his New Testament, and she read it. Some people say she took it to the stake, the Tower of London. 
And she prayed and she said, Lord, I commit my soul to the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross for my sins. She's going to be there. And his last wife, he had six wives, three were called Catherine, so it's hard to keep them apart. <laughs> I once heard EVL say, I have two wives. I have one in heaven and I have one on earth. And that's about the right distance between them, he said. <laughs> but anyway, he has three Catherines. The last Catherine was a believer who talked Henry out of executing her, and she brought up Elizabeth, Elizabeth the Virgin Queen, and they read the New Testament together. I mean, are we talking about... One other thing I have to tell you, and then I will get to uh, the story that I want to tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just feel loose tonight. <laughs> you know, once you get in the spirit, you just have to keep going. So, uh, anyway... Henry VIII, who committed many sins, left a ton of money for masses, because he knew he needed them all, and to build a big mausoleum so that when he was dead, you know, everybody would say, oh, this was the great Henry VIII who was buried here. You know what? When you go to Windsor Castle today, as we did, Eric, this was the highlight of the tour. You walk right on his grave. Because the Edward, who came later for a little while, needed the money for other things, and he never got his big mausoleum. And so you walk right on the grave of Henry VIII. I thought that was one of the funniest things. Don't ever think that the people who succeed you are going to honor you the way in which you think that you're going to be honored. If you want to know how long you're going to be remembered, put your fist into a pail of water and bring it up and see how long it takes before the water fills in where the fist was. All right, here's the story. And then I will close. I will close. Latimer, preacher to Henry VIII, has this debate within him. Latimer, you are standing before Henry VIII, who beheads all kinds of people, not just his two wives, but a whole bunch of others. Henry VIII, you are preaching before him Watch what you say. Then there was another part of Latimer that said, Latimer, you are standing before the king of kings and the judge of all the earth. You had better be faithful to him. So Latimer preaches the gospel to Henry. Henry doesn't have him killed. But after Henry's death, you have Edward and so forth. And then you have Bloody Mary, Henry's first child or first daughter, and she becomes queen, and she wants to rid England of Protestantism. She wants to reinstitute Catholicism. So she has, uh, she kills about a 300 Protestants or so. But three died in Oxford. And you can go today. Have you been to Oxford? <laughs> Your church ought to send you. They ought to take an offering. Amen. 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 Yeah. And, and you actually stand where the fire was. Now, it's on a road and so forth, and there are cars all over the place, but you stand where the fire was. Okay. So Latimer is being burned along with Ridley, who was the, uh, was the mayor of London. They are being burned together. And Latimer was dying quite quickly, but Ridley, oh, the fire. 
wasn't strong enough, so it wasn't killing him, and he was in great grief. He was just crying out, bring more fire, bring more fire. But what did Latimer say to Ridley? This day we are lighting a fire in England. Oh God, open the King of England, Queen of England's eyes, and this day we are lighting in England a fire that shall never go out, and that's how Latimer died. But even though you think I've gone over time, I have to tell you another story. That's part of it. So you're getting your full money's worth today. I have to tell you about Cranmer. <laughs> Too fascinating for the details. But Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury who helped Henry negotiate the divorce between him and Catherine of Aragon, who was Bloody Mary's mother. So she was angry with Cranmer, and she threatened him with, um, with death. And so he capitulated. He wrote six letters in which he said, I uh, deny the Protestant faith, in effect, I accept the Pope, and so forth. And uh, he capitulated and wrote these letters of apology. So if you go to St. Mary's Church today in Oxford, you can actually see what is known as Cranmer's Pillar because chiseled in a pillar is a place where they had put up a platform for him so that he could finally confess to everybody the fact that um, he was denying the Protestant faith and was accepting Catholicism and uh, that he was, he was doing that. Okay. It's full of Catholics, of course, rejoicing. He stands up and shocks the living daylights out of them. He said, I denied the faith because I was full of fear. I now stand here to say that I recant my recantation and I die with faith in Christ as a Protestant. Now Mary, you'd think that she'd have been happy about the fact that he denied the faith, but she wanted to burn him anyway and so after that, certainly, he was taken to the stake. And as he put his hand in the fire, he said, I want my right hand to burn first because this was the hand that signed the original recantation. And they said that his hand was put into the fire until it was a cinder. And he kept saying, this hand, this hand, this hand. In the end, he was faithful but he had a bit of a bumper to getting there. How are you all doing tonight? Don't worry, I'm going to pray. Times are dark. They're getting darker. And you and I must decide, and especially the younger generation, you have to decide, am I going to be faithful and take the lumps as a badge of honor? Because Jesus said, blessed are you if men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Great shall be your reward in heaven. Are you going to be faithful or are you going to capitulate as the cultural streams get wider and more powerful? This is a dark time, especially for the younger generation. Parents, pray for your kids. Grandparents, hold up your grandchildren in prayer. They are facing issues that you and I know nothing about. 
Father, we pray that you might take this challenge and help us to be encouraged to be faithful. And we don't know what that means for our individual lives. I could have talked about that. But whatever it is that God tells us we should do, may we do it. And uh, make us faithful, Lord, no matter how, how hard the journey. And help us to always remember time is short, eternity is long. And it's not how we are viewed on earth, but how heaven views us that really matters. Instill that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.